Hi, welcome to this Property Life podcast. My name is Mark Winship, and this week I'm joined by experienced property investor and trainer James D'Souza in this special panel show episode in which we're talking to Adrian Bellingham from Covest Architecture. Adrian owns an architect and design company that specializes in working with investors to help them realize higher cash flow or a better GDV through intelligent design. In this episode, Adrian shares with us some real gems on what to expect from having a good architect as part of your power team, how to work with building control, and how to be a good client, particularly if you are relatively new to the property game. Adrian has a wealth of experience and knowledge to share, and we've got loads to cover in this episode, so let's get started. Morning, James. How are you doing? Morning, Mark. I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Good. I'm really good, thank you. And we're joined this morning by Adrian Bellingham from Covest Architecture. Thanks for joining us, Adrian. How are you? I'm great, thanks, Mark. And uh, morning to you as well, James. Morning, Adrian. So, yeah, really looking forward to uh, speaking to you this morning, Adrian. Um, All things um, architects and you know, working with architects, some top tips about how to find them, how to be a good client, what you can expect from the process, et cetera, et cetera. So I know there's going to be some some real nuggets come out of our conversation this morning. Um, I also reached out in anticipation of this conversation. I reached out to our community on, very uh, on Facebook, that. yeah, on, uh, on on Property Wealth System community page on Facebook. And um, there's a few of our students have been asking some questions as well. So I'm going to try and drop some of those in um, as as we go through. So I think it's probably best that we start with kind of working with architects 101 really which is and and i know anita has asked this question um already on the facebook group which is you know when should we be looking to use an architect and and why i guess i mean there are even apps on your smartphone now right where you can draw floor plans so surely that's making you guys redundant isn't it i mean (laughs) (laughs) yeah i was hoping it was but it hasn't yet but um yeah, so I think um, I mean the answer to that question is when should you when you should you should engage with an architect as soon as possible. Really, um, yeah. reason being is is if you've got if you've got an architect that you work with quite closely uh, and you get to build up a rapport with that architect and he understands your business and more importantly the type of things that you're getting involved with, then you can establish quite early on the level of expertise that your particular architect has in that area. Because at the end of the day, like in any business, people specialize in, in different areas. And architecture covers everything from schools, hospitals, factories, to you know, residential properties. And invariably, re- the residential side of the market is somewhat dominated by not so much architects, but architectural technologists. And um, there is a little bit of a confusion because there's a general term that gets thrown around as architect. I mean, I'm, I'm actually educated as an architectural technologist, but I run an architectural design uh, business and I employ architects. So, but my forte is spatial awareness. So I'm really good at planning space, massaging that space and getting the best out of it. So I found that for me, my niche was working with investors because invariably if you can, if you can squeeze an extra unit or squeeze an extra room or get an extra ensuite in somewhere, uh, it makes a, a difference to you know, the commercial offering that the, the investor is looking at. And we're either increasing rental yields or we're increasing the GDV of a project by what we're doing design-wise. So I think that's really important because, you know, you can always do a first draft quite 
lazily as a designer and, and, and hit a brief. But the, the, the key is exceeding the brief, and that does take time and effort. And actually, it takes a bit of passion as well, uh, because quite often, you know, uh, we, we particularly take it as a challenge to always almost over deliver on a brief. If someone wants 17 rooms or 17, you know, um, kitchenettes in, in rooms, it would always see if there's a way of either doing it better and giving 16 to provide more value or find that 18th room. And sometimes less is more because, you know, you can cram uh, and detract from the actual rental yield of each room and by removing one room and making the rest, you know, improved as a result, you could get a higher rental yield. So I guess really, you know, the reason I say early is because there is an education process you need to go through with your designer. You need to educate them on what you're doing and what's important to you in your brief. So I yeah. think that's that's a, that. So the earlier that relationship starts, the better. And what you don't yeah. want to be doing is, you know, if you're doing regional projects, uh, you know, one in London, one in Birmingham, then you suddenly do one in Scotland. You don't want to be going to different architects each time because you're just going to be reinventing the wheel. You're not quite sure of their level of expertise. You're going to have to go through that learning curve. So rather take your architect with you. Because in this day and age with Google Earth and Google Maps and Zoom calls and Teams calls, you know, national is not an issue. And invariably, and I'm a good example of this, I very rarely go to site because I don't need to. I send my surveyors there, my topographical surveyors, my building surveyors, and our medium is plans and elevations and sections. So as soon as we've got that digital data in front of us, that's when we can start doing our role. Hmm. So really interesting because often often some of the advice that we hear being given out not necessarily from property wealth system but but kind of in the property world is that go to an architect that has local area knowledge and knows the council because ultimately an architect can design the world's best plans but unless planning uh, and the council are prepared to, to accept that planning permission when it's been submitted it's not going to necessarily get built correct james and actually that's a really good point so the reason why you need to engage with an architect early as well is that any decent architectural designer is going to have a relationship with a planning consultant. So we have a relationship with a number of planning consultants. One is particularly based in the London area and one's based in the Midlands. However, planning policy is national. So, you know, when you look at policy, policy is policy. Hmm. And so really geographically, knowing the planners isn't really of any help because if you know the planners, it actually works against you because it's actually a conflict of interest for planners. If, you, if you're really friendly with them, if they're a friend of the family, you have to kind of tick a box to say you've got a vested interest in this. So it's actually better to be more professional and one step removed. Um, so we work on the principle that everything we look at within reason, I mean, if it's an extension of the back of someone's property, we, we wouldn't draw it to the attention of a planning consultant. But anything which involves planning, uh, change of use, we would always run it past our planning consultant first and say, right, is this something you need to be involved in? And they will look at it and they'll give like a good solicitor sort of 15, 20 minutes of free advice. And they'll say, mm, you know what, it's, a, it's an infill plot. It's, it's not in a conservation area. It's not adjacent to any historic buildings or backing onto Greenbelt. It's fairly standard policy. It's, it's washed over by you know, this, this particular policy, which is actually promoting development. Do you know what? This is probably quite straightforward. If you're just doing a single dwelling here, it, you know, you're more than likely to going to get it through, providing you, you do your architectural bits correct. But it could be the opposite. It could be actually it's on the peripheral of a village. You know, it's 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 looking out onto Greenbelt. It's adjacent to a uh, enlisted building. Uh, it's in a conservation area. 
wow, this, you're going to have to jump through a few hoops here. You're going to have to put a really strong argument forward to the planners for them to actually consider this. And that's when you need your planning consultant on board because they are basically the barristers of the planning world. You know, and I understand policy to a point, but policy is down to interpretation. And a good planning consultant will interpret a policy and actually argue your strengths and kind of mitigate your your weaknesses with with with, um, with the planning departments. And, and and the thing is as well, planning departments are under a lot of pressure at the moment. And therefore, if you go in with a scheme, as you just rightly mentioned, James, but it's not been thought through and clearly is overdevelopment or over-intensification of a site, and you've not shown any respect to any of the planning policies, it's just going to get thrown out straight away without any consideration. If you've put a very well-thought-through um, scheme together, you've liaised with your planning consultant. So the way we work is we just say to our planning consultant, right, you give us the challenges, you give us the restrictions, tell us what the problems are, tell us where we have to be careful, as in separation distances or overlooking, overshadowing issues or access to the site because it's a highways issue in terms of the highway and then we'll analyze all of these restrictions on the site and then we will come up with a scheme that fits within those restrictions now that scheme may be a third of what you as a developer want but it's the scheme you're going to get so that's part of a feasibility exercise and it's really important that before you get into detailed design or even listening to your client saying i want 10 units on here or i want this property to be converted into 18 flats you've got to have that conversation with the planning department first to see is that like are you going to be pushing against an open door or are you literally going to be ruffling feathers from as soon as you go in there and would you be better off with maybe even a phased approach where you actually do the minimum you need to do to get say change of use to residential once you've secured that you're then going with a separate scheme to increase the intensification of the site by maybe adding extensions later so quite often Depending on policies, there is not just a, it's not a yes and no answer. It's quite often it depends. How long have you got? What's your budget? Can, you know, can you wait six months? Could you good? Could you do two applications, or has it got to all be done in one go? And all of these things are really important because ultimately, as a client, I'm a consultant. A planning consultant is a consultant to you, and your your decision with what you go forward with is based on that advice. Now, if the advice is a bit gung-ho from a planning consultant, and there are a few out there that do kind of over-promise and under-deliver, and you'd be better off with the Grim Reaper approach, where they're kind of really knocking the knocking the wind out your sails a bit, uh, then you're like, oh, and you go in more conservatively. Uh, but what I tend to do is I have the client on the left who wants 20 units, 20 rooms, or, or whatever the number is, and I've got the planning consultant on the right that's saying, mm, you'd be better off going for 10, because that's more likely to get through. And then I end up working with both, and we agree on 15, because there is a degree of design that comes into it. And quite often, planning consultants, because they're not designers, they can't see the potential of the site. And if you ask, if you ask the planning consultant, well, how many dwellings do you think I could get on there? They're more than likely to say, well, I, I no more than five. But then they're not looking at it from a spatial awareness point of view. So quite often when we put a scheme together, even if it's a conversion into flats, for instance, from a commercial property or some new build site, the response we generally get from the planning consultant is like, wow, okay, didn't expect you to get that out of it, but actually, no, that does work actually. And yeah, um, I think we could go with that. So 
you don't want to go with the initial response of the planning consultant because it's usually quite conservative. Yeah. But equally, you know, a really enthusiastic client could shoot themselves in the foot by just pushing onto the architect their, their um, expectations. And I think it's really important that your architect or your designer is not an instruction taker, mm. that they yeah. are actually part of the design team, they're part of your business effectively, and they're, they're giving you good advice and they're analyzing what you're looking for and they're looking for, for wins, but they're also not looking to expose you to, to failure. Um, and if, if, if we get planning refused, it does actually reflect on us because it means somewhere in that process, there's been a communication breakdown and we've not been able to get that information because during that planning process, there is an opportunity to tweak, reduce and change the design to fit the criteria. And if you haven't got that, that dialogue going with the planners, the architect and your uh, planning consultant and your leader and you're feeding that back to your client, you, it will end up as a refusal. The worst it should end up as is a withdrawal of the application so don't get a refusal and you go back in with the knowledge of what you've learned in that process with a scheme that will get planning permission. I think you raise a really interesting point there because um, so you and I have done a few projects together now, Adrian, and um, for me, it's very much a two way street. So I was flippant at the beginning about, yeah. you know, yeah. there's a lot more to working with an architect than just drawing some floor plans. And so in terms of what people can expect from having an architect as a member of their team, that's that's some really good insight because it is very much a two-way street, isn't it? Obviously, we're coming with a brief as the client, and that's important that I guess we are as clear as we possibly can be as to what we want from it, but also that you're going to provide, you're going to come back with guidance and you're going to steer, and it, it's, it's a meeting in the middle there, isn't it? Rather than sort of, I guess, the, the investor being a bit bullish and saying, this is what I want, just draw it for me. Yeah, um, you know, and, and so it's what to expect, I guess, from an architect being part of your team. Yeah, and I think it, it is a two-way street because uh, people think that they select architects, but quite a lot of the time, architects select their clients so, <laughs> or deselect their clients um, by being very busy and not being able to, uh, unfortunately, help them out on, on occasions. Because if you do get someone that just comes in all the time and just says, right, I want to do this, and you're like, well, that's never going to get planning permission. Well, I'm paying you, so just do the yeah. drawing. That's fine on one level because, you know, we'll just take the money, thank you very much, and you get a refusal. But ultimately, our credibility as designers and, and advisors starts getting damaged because regardless of whether or not it's been a prescriptive approach from a client, when that planning refusal comes in, it only reflects on one person, and that's the person that put it in. Uh, and, you know, it's very hard to argue, and quite often afterwards, you know, people, when they're, they're less gung-ho when they get a refusal and then realise... There's a financial implication now. They're looking for someone to blame. So I would rather have that awkward conversation at the beginning and even risk someone saying, well, you're not the person for me then if you're not going to do as, as you're told, and walk away uh, knowing that you know, we can offer that value to a number of other clients and actually work you know, as part of the team. So, And a good example of that was we were working on a scheme recently where they wanted uh, I think it was 29, uh, 16 and 14, whatever that adds up to, um, units, uh, one bed and two bed units. It was a mix. And we looked at the scheme and it was the, the, the option was, look, this has already got planning permission for three blocks. Let's push against an open door with the planners. Let's just convert these blocks into flats. They were residential um, houses. Let's just convert them into flats and let's go in with the same scheme. It's got the same mass in. It's already got planning permission for that mass in. Let's push against an open door. 
Well, we started off looking at that scheme and trying to get flats into that sort of existing block. It just wasn't working in terms of layout and flow. Uh, the parking arrangements weren't working. And we spent quite a lot of time trying to shoehorn this new scheme into the existing scheme. And after about a day of doing this, we just thought, you know what, this is, this is, this is ridiculous. So we, we called a meeting. We basically revised the, the design, the design of the scheme completely, came up with a completely different approach on the site, which was more conducive to, uh, to flats. But we ended up with 27 two-bedroom flats. And more importantly, 30% of those flats were actually disabled access. So they were M43 compliant for building roads and they had their own parking space. Now there was a little, because we worked with a planning consultant on this and we were talking early doors about what we can do to get this across the line. Uh, yes, one of the things was work within the existing massing of the scheme. But the second thing was, if you had 30% disabled access, then invariably those schemes will get passed by the planners because you're, you're offering a lot in terms of, you know, to the community with that disabled access. So by going for M43 compliant layout, we ended up with larger footprint for the um, ground floor units, which we just took up into the other floors above, which were not M43 compliant because they're obviously on the first and second floors. But they ended up with really nice layouts because they were obviously a little bit more generous and above the national space standards in a lot of instances, even though they weren't adopted. Um, and that is a subject we should probably talk about at some point today. Uh, but yeah, national space standards. And the scheme now is a much better scheme. We ended up going back to the planners, doing a massing exercise, showing the impact of the previous scheme and, and the impact of our new scheme. And our, our new scheme actually has less impact on the neighboring properties either side. So that's a classic example of if they had gone to another company, potentially they would have got close to what they asked for within that existing footprint, but they would not have got the scheme they got. And I think it's really, it's actually quite intimidating sometimes for a, a, a designer to go completely off brief and almost say to the client, no, actually you're wrong in this instance. We need to go down this route. Let, let's just put something together. But, you know, if you're not getting, having those conversations, the chances are you are dealing with an instruction taker and that's not the best person for you to be dealing with. Yeah. So in terms of, so you mentioned building control. So uh, most people will be broadly familiar with the idea of using an architect to obviously produce the design concepts, uh, concepts and submitting to, to, to planning. Where does building control come into that and what role do you guys have with respect to that side of things? So what's interesting is if you look at the, um, if you look at the RIBA sort of process of uh, design, it's all in stages, I won't bore you, but there's a number of stages you go through. Uh, and you know, it starts off with feasibility and it ends up with detailed design. And at some point in that list, you get to building control. And even when we quote for projects, we'll quote for concept scheme, well, we'll quote for planning advice, surveys, concept scheme design, planning, building control, construction drawings, and site, you know, contractual matters following through. So there is a, there is a, obviously a flow. The misconception is you only start looking at building control when you get to building control stage. The reality is I could not have designed that scheme with 27 units with 30% of them being M43 compliant unless I designed an M43 compliant disabled access layout to create the footprint to then duplicate that footprint on the site. Now, that doesn't mean, 
and this is something that some people may be shocked about if they're just getting involved in a development. You can go to an architect and he can design you a scheme. You can get planning permission for it. You can then submit it for building control approval and it will be thrown out because it's not compliant and you can't build it. So your 27 units would then turn into 24. To me, that is that shouldn't be allowed. There should be a law against that and anyone that does that should be culpable and held, you know, well hung about what's gone wrong here. But that's because the planning, the planners and building control don't really talk to each other in that sense. So if you're doing a flatter development, clearly things like escape means of escape and travel distances and things are quite important. Planners don't consider any of that. Uh, very rarely, and I think only on one scheme, have we been asked to prove that our planning designs complied with building control. And the reason for that was there was a previous scheme put into a council for two dwellings. And we went back on the same plot, which was the same size, and we designed three dwellings in a, in a terrace as opposed to a semi. And the planners were scratching their head because there's a, well, the, the site was tight originally and you've just put another dwelling on it. And they were almost accusing us of like massaging, massaging the design <laughs> to make it work. So we had to prove that all of the layouts not only comply with the national space standards and the uh, an M4, M42 in this instance, uh, disabled access, but we had to give scale drawings showing all of the dimensions to prove that it, we weren't, you know, tweaking it because they're obviously they are used to architects doing that sort of thing, you know, just to yeah. get it across the line. Yeah. Um, but it's a false economy because you know at the end of the day you don't want to be drastically changing your plan. So when we when we when we quote for for, for work, our upfront cost for feasibility and concept scheme design is higher than our building control fees. And the reason being is because most of the thought process has gone through in that design stage and we are compliant with building control in terms of travel distances means of escape and, and spatial issues um, and disabled access prior to even get to that building control stage so again important question to ask your architect when they're designing for you you know although we haven't got to the building control stage are we going to have any issues with this design at building control is it compliant do you need to consult now with your with a local building control officer, whether that's the council or an independent body. And that's why it's useful. Again, we have good relationships with building control and we consult with them and we pay them to consult with them at the concept scheme design stage. So within our fee, we have a fee to building control for early feasibility engagement, where we're asking them questions about general access stairs. And when you're doing things like refurbishment work, a lot of things like access and uh, fire and even means means of access like staircases and, and things, there are there is a degree of wiggle room when you're doing a conversion. And if you're working with a uh, quite forward-thinking building control company, they will look at the impact of your design, you know, insisting on like a general access stair, which is a, a 170 riser and a 250 minimum going, as opposed to a domestic stair, which is 42 degrees, which obviously gets you to where you want to get to quicker. But that half a meter or meter additional landing space that you need with a general access there could could reduce your scheme by one apartment you know mm. it could literally be that impactful now if you explain that to building control they'll say well look, in this instance you're only serving two flats i know it's really one 
but in this instance, we'll let you go to a 42 degree domestic staircase because otherwise you're just not going to fit it in. And that's the dialogue you need and the relationship you need with building control because we are always working within the restraints imposed on us by a building, a client or regulations. Yeah. yeah. In terms of that building control, you mentioned um, you can go to a council appointed or you can you can uh, appoint an independent building control officer. Is there any benefit? You know, which which do you prefer working with and why? So, first of all, I think it's important to understand why there are uh, why there are independents out there in the first place. And it's quite a funny story um, because I believe uh, it was a politician who remained nameless that fell out with a planning department when he tried to get a pond in his back garden and they wouldn't approve it. So he decided he was going to. He was going to um, privatise the planning department, uh, which, which didn't go down too well. And they actually said, no, you can't do that. So he said, well, what can I privatise? And so we well, could privatise building control. He says, right, I'll do that then. And that, that's, how, that's how it came about. It was actually a politician not really very happy with not getting approval for a pond. So the, the landscape of that means that obviously most um, local authorities have had work taken off of them as a result of that. Uh, it wasn't something they were invited at the time. Now, we've moved on a few years now, and the councillors could not cope with the amount of work coming through. I mean, they're struggling with planning applications at the moment. If, if they got every building control application, they would be swamped completely. So there is a there is a need now for these independents. Benefit of working with a council is, you know, you know as a client, if the council are going to approve something, you've got that, you know, um, from, a, from a company that have no vested interest, in approving your scheme, other than the fact that it is 100% compliant. There is a danger, I guess, with independence that if you, like with everything, you know, if you build up a good relationship with an independent, well, they might bend a few things for you. You know, I'm not suggesting they do, but they might be a little bit too lenient. And then ultimately, what you've got to think of as a client is a bit like when you sign your tax return, um, you are taking responsibility for that. And you are taking responsibility. So if anything happened in the future and there was an issue, and a good example of this, and we had it actually on your scheme, Mark, uh, if you remember when we were doing service accommodation, uh, we got into all sorts of discussions about means of escape and definition of service accommodation. Now, planners don't really recognize service accommodation unless it's multiple units. So when it's smaller units, number of units like three to five, they're not really that interested. And they just view them as C3 dwellings. And that's, that's the planning route. So when you take that to building control, they see you've got planning approval for a C3 dwelling. The fact you're going to use it as a service accommodation unit is of no interest to them. So they see C3 dwelling, and they treat it as a C3 dwelling from a, from a means of escape point of view for fire. Now, whilst they're doing nothing wrong with that, you as a client have a duty of care to tell building control the use of that building, how you intend to use it. As soon as you tell them that you are likely to be having people sleeping in the kitchen on a sofa bed, um, their alarm bells are going to go off. If you tell them this is a short-term let, it could be someone coming in for a weekend and then leaving again. Reason being is that in a C3 dwelling, it's your house. It's, you know, you, you know your house, you know, inside out. If there's a fire, you're going to get out of bed, you're going to run for the door, you're going to go and you protect a means of escape in terms of your staircase. And you're going to run out your front door. Yeah, so, um, yeah, we, we had this mark on, if you remember, on your scheme with uh, serviced accommodation units. And um, planning departments don't, don't tend to recognise serviced accommodation unless it's multiple units. 
So for smaller schemes, they tend to view them as C3 dwellings. Um, and quite often they will only allow you to get a C3 status on those. Uh, the problem with that is when it goes to building control, they're looking, to, looking at it as a C3 dwelling in terms of fire and means of escape. Uh, and obviously in your own domestic dwelling, you could have a party at home, people could sleep over and sleep in the kitchen, not a problem. Um, but if you do that as a service accommodation unit, you are putting people's lives at risk with like fire issues. So you need to make it really clear to building control the use of the building so they can understand to give you the right fire strategy. And even though it's a C3 dwelling planning-wise, they would then view it as like rooms for residential use and give a slightly more onerous um, approach from a building control point of view. Um, if you don't, a lot of investors will say to me, oh, well, I've spoken to building control. We don't, we don't need to do this. I'm like, no, you've just not told them what you're doing in enough detail that they can advise you correctly. So you need, you need to uh, work with building control rather than trying to you know, work around them. So, and it's really important because obviously when you start running a business, uh, your insurances and things will all come into play. And you know, if there's any issues with things like fire, but there is a reason for it, and I think I mentioned this, is that if you ever go and stay in a hotel, um, there is a chance you're going to get slightly disorientated at night. And if you get out of bed at home and go right and open the door into the bathroom, that's probably what you're going to do, especially if you've got a, you've got a few bedders. Um, but you might be opening the door and going into the corridor. And I'm sure that's happened to all of us. And you turn around <laughs> and you're locked out your hotel room and you stood in the corridor at three o'clock in the morning. Or is that, is that just me? Uh, so, but the thing is, is if there was a fire... That those few seconds of confusion and you going in the wrong direction or not finding the fire escape or not jumping out of the correct window. I mean, the reason why you can jump out of a window at first floor level in your own home is because you know below is the patio or the lawn and you're not going to jump onto anything untoward. If you jumped out of the hotel bedroom window on the fourth floor, it's not going to be as good an outcome at the end. So, you know, means of escape have got to be through protective stairwells and you know, with proper lighting. And, you know, and even the smoke, you need sort of lighting at low levels so people can navigate the way out. So not something to be taken lightly and always engage with those companies. Therefore, if you choose, because to answer your question, if you choose a independent and you use them on all, the same independent on all of your projects, and a lot of them work nationally, then they get to know your business. They understand you're doing service accommodation. And then, you know, you're not reinventing that wheel each time because... We have a lot of investors that says, well, on the last project, we didn't have to do X, Y, and Z. I'm like, well, that's great. That was your last project. This, this is the current one, and this is the advice we're giving you. Um, but it does create a little bit of conflict because quite often they were just badly advised on the previous scheme, and I, you know, I can't really uh, help them with that. But uh, you know, we're giving best advice moving forward. In terms of cost, is it is it very similar to be working with a an independent versus a council appointed? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, like everything, it, the independents are, I guess, in competition for work. The councils aren't quite as, you know, competition sort of driven. Um, it used to be that on the smaller schemes, the independents were cheaper. Um, but I think that's changed now. I think that there's a lot more commonality between, between schemes. I think a lot of it is, like with anything to do with fees, you need to look at what you're getting. So response times are really important. So you may find with the council, and this is not across the board, but it may well be if they're under a lot of pressure, the response times aren't going to be there, you know, as much as maybe with an independent. If you've if you've got a relationship with an independent, you can pick up a mobile, you know, pick up their mobile number, 
you can WhatsApp them, you can send them photos of what you're doing. You know, it, it's all down to, like most things in life, finding someone who you can work with. You know, we, we yeah. worked for 10 years with one independent. They gave us bad, bad advice on three jobs with the same client. Um, and as a result of that, we moved completely over to another independent uh, because, you know, quite frankly, you know, their advice that they're giving us reflects on what we can give to the client. And then that had a change of staff and there were some junior people that would come in. And, um, you know, it's like every organization. Advice is only as good as the people that are giving it. And um, so, we, you know, we're always looking to make sure we've got the best consultants, the best advice on board, because they're effectively bolstering up us up with what we offer to, to our clients. And we are effectively the mouthpiece for all of these organizations. And we're interpreting planning consultants, building control and planning, and feeding that back to our client. So if we've got misinformation coming in, we're going to be getting passing that on to our clients, which is, which is not a great place to be. So what advice would you have then for how an investor could be a good client working with architects? So the other side of the coin, in a way, we had Paul on, a project manager builder, um, a, a few episodes ago, and it was great to get his insight into you know, how, do you, how do you be a good client from an investor point of view? And I guess the same applies when it comes to working with an architect. So what advice would you give on that front? That's a, really, that's a really good and nice question, Mark, actually, because it's not it's not one we get asked a lot, um, you know, how to be a good client. But it is actually really important because, you know, in life, everyone's human and people like working with people to get on with and, you know, that are easy to deal with um, and are responsive. And quite often, if you're a nice client and, you know, we've got clients and, yeah, Mark, you're one of them, let's face it, <laughs> but we'll ring us up and say, guys, I've, I've got to get this in by this day. Hey, yeah, I know. You know, I know you're really busy, but is there anything you can do? And you know, the answer is always like for you, Mark. Yes, but <laughs> okay, leave it with me. You know, but if you've got a client that just doesn't listen to you, constantly puts you under pressure all the time, and is is quite um, you know abrasive, the answer is going to be no, isn't it? It's going to be no. We've got two week lead time. That's what it is. Take it or leave it. So we jump through hoops for you know our repeat business clients, but equally. You know, the reason why we do that is because we understand that for you, time is money. Uh, yeah. For another client, and let's just say it's a domestic client, and we're, we're building a, doing an extension and putting it for planning, a couple of days, you know, difference between putting it for planning isn't going to make a lot of difference to their application. So if we're, if we're moving things around and we're working to priorities, and we say this to our domestic clients, we say, look, you know, we don't really work to time scales because we're, we're a busy practice. But, you know, if you're under a specific deadline that you need to have this in by, let us know now because we'll we'll take your project on or not with that in mind. And most clients will say, no, 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 we're not in a rush. We've been thinking about this for the last six months anyway. We've only, we've only just made the decision, you know I mean? We think about this in years. Now, as long as it's in for the end, I mean, we won't be building until next year. We've got that flexibility within our, within our workflow. We can always rob Peter to pay Paul and, and jump through hoops for our clients. But... How to be a good client is really, once you've found that architect or that designer that can do what you need them to do, is learn from them and make their life easier yeah. by giving them information in the way that they need it. I'll give an example is, uh, I do a lot of networking, as you know, I do a lot of networking training events. And I do, I do one particular training event on land. And it always goes down really well um i always ask for a show of hands at the beginning 
as to who's interested in, in developing land. And about 75% of the room's hands go up. And then by the time I finished the presentation, I asked the same question again, and about 30% of the room put their hand up. Um, reason being is because land is tricky. It is not as simple as most people think. And there's a lot of hurdles and a lot of costs up front, potentially for no gain at all. You could do a lot of you know, pre-app advice and, and take option agreements out with, with vendors uh, and pay for consultants and you know, grant contamination you know, works and all, all sorts of um, reports that are needed by councils only to determine that your site is not viable. And you could be five or six or 10,000 pounds out of pocket at that point, walking away, looking for another job. So unless you are a serious investor and you understand all of these parameters, and more importantly, you understand how to price up a scheme and get a GDV and get a bill cost, really stay away. You know, and that's my advice, you know, until, until you're in that position. But we do get it where we, we do that presentation and then I get someone WhatsApping me and saying, oh, I've been looking at this bit of land it, at this postcode and I go onto Google Earth and I'm trying to find this bit of land and it's, oh, it's opposite the pub. And I'm kind of like, uh, and I'm texting them like, whereabouts it? Because I'm just looking, there's no, oh no, well, the postcode doesn't take you to it. And then, you know, before the time I've actually identified where the plot of land is, I've probably spent an hour just mm -hmm. finding the plot of land. So what I say to them now is, look, and they, oh, then they send me a link to the planning portal. Oh, it already had a plan application uh, three years ago, which has expired. Here's the link. You go to the link, and there's 27,000 documents to wade through, and none of them actually say on that document, this is the site plan. So you have to go through 27 plans to find the site plan to then have a look at what was on there. Another hour of my time has just been absorbed going through the planning portal, trying to find that particular site plan to even be in a position where I can assess it. So if that's happening all the time, quite frankly, I'm going to get a bit frustrated because I'm not charging for that service. I'm two hours down. By the time I give them some advice, I'm three or four. It's half a day gone. You know, and then they go, oh, right, okay. We're probably not going to pursue that now. Okay, thanks. Yeah. So I'm like, well, no, what you need to do is find that site plan, find, find the plot on Google Earth, mark up a red line around the boundary of the plot that we're talking about so I can clearly identify it on Google Earth. If you've got a title deed, send that as well. If, even if you've got a, you know, a street view of the particular development so I can see it where it is on street view, and then give me a bit more up and down the street as to what's happening on the street as well. Stick it on a PowerPoint slide with a detailed postcode and address on there with what you're looking to do with the plot. So as a snapshot, I can look at that in 30 seconds, go boom, 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 forward it to my planning consultant. He'll have a look at it and go, okay, great. This is where it is. I don't need to go on Google Earth. I can see it. Oh, okay, right, that is in such and such an area, conservation area, backing onto Greenbelt. No way, Jose. Right? In 30 seconds of a planning consultant's time, or even yeah. a minute, he's, he's basically said no. Right? The client may have spent an hour and a half, two hours pulling all that together, but we've made that decision in five minutes. Yeah. And he says no, don't even pursue it. I had one client the other day who said they, they wanted to get two houses in the back of a plot. When I found the plot, I took a screenshot and said, is this the plot we're talking about? And they went, yes. I went, okay, in that case, no. Well, have you spoken to your planning consultant? Don't need to, it's a no. Oh, why is it a no? You need to get a little bit more education before I can answer that, but it's a no. At this stage, just move on, because yeah. it was so ridiculously unviable, I had to question the the level of, you know, yeah. sort of education of that investor. So. 
we do work with uh, investors and we do hold their hand. And, and as you know, Mark, over the years, we've, we've worked together. Yeah. And you are one of those investors that is like a sponge and you absorb stuff and learn from it and move on. Yeah. So that's what you want to be. You want to be a sponge, learn off your architect, take advice. But then when you get the planning reports through and they start talking about these issues like backland development and things, start learning these terms. And then when you look at a site, ask yourself a few questions or you look at a building and, and think to yourself, you know, am I going to get a HMO in an Article 4 area in Nottingham? Chances are not. I mean, that's mm. not, I mean, we've just got planning permission in Article 4 for a, a 13th HMO. It can be done, but under very specific circumstances. In the main, it's not going to be a goer. So learn the basics so that when you go to your consultant, they understand that you've done your homework and you know what you're talking about. Yeah. Because also, every what you've got to remember is every consultant's really busy. So if you come across as a tire kicker and you're giving information in a really haphazard way, they're sitting there thinking, mm, how serious is this investor? Am I going to waste like three or four days of my life helping you out with this and it's going to go nowhere? If you get something really concise, I've done this, I've worked out the GDV in this area, we can get, you know, we need to get eight flats out of this building, otherwise it doesn't stack. Yeah, the rental yield in this area is quite low, therefore we need X. We can look at it and say, right, just looking at the footprint, the maximum you're going to get out of this is six. Oh, okay, that's a non-starter. Okay, let's move on. We'll move on very quickly. Um, rather than, uh, we've got this building, how many units do you think we can get out of it? It's, a, it's about educating your architect of what you want him to look for, what's important for you. Because you, I, I get it a lot of the time. They said, send me a picture on Rightmove, and it says, what do you think about this for a HMO? I go, lovely. Yeah, it would be lovely, wouldn't it? Oh, how many, how many rooms do you think we could get out of it? Well, have you actually looked at how many rooms are in it? I mean, maybe you should be telling me how many rooms it's currently got in there so I can then do it. Well, if it's a three bed, we could probably turn into a six with a lounge and rest. You know, give me something. Don't don't just ask me an open-ended question. Uh, so I think that's the answer is be as educated as you can be, but also ask your designer, your architect, what format would you like me to present these yeah. opportunities in? And have you got a template you could send me and I can quite easily just send the previous template that someone sent to me to them and say, well, this is how we like it presented. Could you, could you present it in this format? And then do it in that format. Now, I've started doing that and people have started actually doing it. So it's a win-win because they're getting better advice quicker because yeah. they've done the homework. And I'm actually more entitled you know, to educate them. So in the hour and a half, two hours I was finding the plot, I'm now speaking to them on a Zoom call and giving them a little bit of education and I'd rather be educating someone than trying to find the site because, you know, we've only got so many hours in there. Yeah. Brilliant. So hopefully that answers your question. Yeah. In, no. ter in terms of you sort of mentioned um, land was something that, you know, as maybe a first time developer should be kind of steering, steering clear of. What would you say maybe a first time for an investor who's now looking to maybe bridge up from buy to lets to maybe a, a small development of sorts? What kind of project should they be looking for at the moment? Some, maybe something with expired planning, something that would kind of be able to be developed under permitted development. What would you say would be a good, um, a, a good maybe first first deal for somebody that's now looking to to move into having to use an architect as part of their team? Yeah, I mean that's that's a good question, James, because um, you know it, it. 
as I said earlier, you know, you, you need to have a, a, an appetite for, it's, it's a different ball game. A lot of things you can assess when it's property. You can get a survey done quite reasonably, you know, for a thousand pounds, you can get a condition survey done on a property. You know, you've got something solid, the footprint's there. You can work out what you can get in it with your architect quite simply. When it comes to land, a lot of the issues are obviously planning related. So even if, even if there is room to get two houses on a site, the first question is, why hasn't why hasn't that been done already? You know, if that plot's there and it's on the market, especially if it's on right move. It's on if it's on right move with potential for development, I would have my spider senses going and saying, mm, really potential for development. Okay, and invariably nine times out of ten, when you click on you know the planning portal and start looking at the history, something's been refused on there, and therefore, you know, or more importantly. The application was withdrawn and that tells you something because that tells you that someone went in for something the planners were like well if you leave this in we're going to refuse it but you can withdraw it oh, okay we'll withdraw it therefore there's not a refusal and they go right okay let's put it on right move with uh, you know potential for planning now that could mean that's an opportunity because it could mean they went to one of these architects which was an instruction taker and he didn't ask the right questions of the client and didn't advise the client what he could get on there and you, maybe he was pushing the envelope when we get too much on there uh, and therefore you know that could be an opportunity but all i would say is with land start small the obvious thing to do if you if you've never built a new done a new build is to start with something with planning permission yes there's going to be less uplift in value but you're still going to get the uplift in value from the development rather than a brownfield site what about maybe sort of a, a conversion so looking for an office to be able to convert would that be kind of a better starting point well, yes and no, again. So everything depends, right? So look, in 12 years, you would have thought I would be able to cut and paste a lot of stuff by now. You know, we've got thousands of uh, domestic extensions, thousands of, you know, hundreds of, um, of HMOs that we've done. You know, how many configurations of a three-bedroom townhouse can you do for a HMO? Well, we're still doing them. You know, I've not cut and paste one yet. Mm. And it's the same with land. So, and the same with commercial. So a couple of things with commercial, the good news about you know, office to resi is it's, it's PD, but you need to understand what the PD is because there's a prior approval process as well. And quite often, again, because it's a 90 pound fee to the council, quite often the council, although that exists because legislation has been put in place, they're quite resistant to it. And if they can find a reason why you can't do it under PD, they will find that. So you have to go through the full planning process. So again, even though it's PD, get a planning consultant involved because I've had it where clients have said to me, oh no, we don't want to use a planning consultant because it's PD. I'm like, mm, it's prior approval. Yeah, we've done all the paperwork. We've submitted it already. Um, and we paid the 90 pound. I said, okay, what support and information did you put with it? Uh, oh, we've just oh, we've, we've fag packaged out a scheme. Okay, you've not even come to me for a concept design. No, okay, good luck with that. You know, and then it comes back. Uh, sorry, you know, residential in this area due to the you know poor outlook and lack of amenity space, we don't feel this would be conducive under this clause, that clause. You know, and it gets kicked out. Have um, any wonderful planning? If you'd have gone in with a slightly more intelligent approach and a little bit of a concept scheme design, looked at all the challenges. That would affect PD and prior approval. We could have mitigated some of those early early doors 
and maybe allowed that to go through the PD route. So, um, but the main thing with, with Office to Resi is you've got to have a pretty good understanding of conversion costs. And that varies hugely. So you could argue a plot, an infill plot between two houses with planning permission for a single dwelling is actually a safer bet than a commercial to resi conversion because you don't know what you're buying. You don't know what how, how old that building is, what issues it's got with it structurally, you know, thermally, just condition-wise, you know, and what's in the ground. Has it been used, you know, for other uses over the years? So, so it, it's a bit like the child that goes to their mum and asks a question. And she says, well, why don't you just ask your dad? And the kid says, well, I, I just didn't want to know that much about it, mum. <laughs> no, yeah. because that is what happens when you start coming to someone like me who understands the full process. You're yeah. not going to get a short answer. It's not going to be, yeah, we can convert that into. The, que the questions will start, okay, have you had a condition survey done? No, have you had a structural survey done? Okay, I'll probably start there and make sure the building's sound before we start converting, because you may have 50,000 pounds worth of remedial cost before you even get it back to a point where I can start converting it. So stop working out your square meter rates for conversion because you've not allowed for all the costs that are likely to go into that site prior to even getting to that stage. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, the answer is, you. I think as an investor, um, a lot of investors are, they go on courses and they hear, go large or go home, yeah? Um, which is great because it sells courses, but what it's not teaching people is due diligence, you yeah. know, surround yourself with a team of professionals. And if you think about it, as a property investor, you actually need zero knowledge if you've got a team of consultants around you that know what they're doing. So yeah. there is an argument that you could go large on a larger scheme, provided you can demonstrate to the bank that you've got X amount of experience in your team. You've got a planning consultant, an architect, a building surveyor, you know, a cost consultant, you've got quantity surveyors on board, you've got, you know, every consultant you can think of. Now, the good news with that is the banks would be very favorable. The bad news with that is you've got to pay those consultants to do their job. Yeah. So quite often what you find is a lot of these courses will be like, yeah, go and find the plot and then, you know, do a JV with someone and all the rest of it. I mean, you know, money's easy to get to, you can get crowdfunding, all of this, all of that is noise. Because what it means is, yeah, someone may lend you the money. It doesn't mean you're going to make money on that side. You could still lose money hand over fist, regardless of whether it's crowdfunding. Yeah. So the, the fundamentals of assessing a site and going through that due diligence and looking at all the, all the problems is, is important. And, you know, again, I, I think people remember things with humor more than they do with boring facts and figures. So my son, when he went to uni, I said to him, right, put a spreadsheet together of all of your costs. And then we'll look at, you know, how much I'm going to need to top you up by, yeah? Because that's what it comes down to. You know, just get, you know, how much they're going to get off of you? I thought, I'm not just going to be an open checkbook. I want to see it. So put down all your costs and stuff. So my son put all his costs in there. And I said to him, okay, you haven't got anything in for haircuts. I went, you're just going to grow your hair long, are you? He's like, oh, all right. I said, that's a, that's a tenner a month. Oh, okay. I said, oh, you've not got anything in here for this. Oh, okay, what, what about dental dental stuff? What about this? I went, anyway, I went through this list. I added like stuff in there. And at one point he went, Dad, stop adding stuff to my list. I said, I'm not adding it. You've just missed it off. Yeah. There's a difference, right? Yeah. I said, Let's be realistic. And what most property investors, newbie property investors do, 
is they get a template, they start filling it in, and when it doesn't stack, they'll go back through it and reduce the bill cost, and they'll increase the <laughs> rent yield. And they go, oh, I about it works now. There you go. I'm making £10,000 on a £3.5 million project. But, but my walls are built with Weetabix. I'm in profit, yeah? And then, you know, I'm the Grim Reaper, and I say, okay, just do me a favour. Just drop just drop the um, projected price of the sale price of those units by 5%. And now just put the bill cost up by 10%. Where are we now? Mm-hmm. Minus half a million. That's the trouble with bigger jobs, right? Because yeah. on bigger jobs, a little fluctuation... And we had this conversation earlier about tiles and things, you know, like, you know, yeah. it's only a few pound extra for some tiles, but on 27 units, yeah. you know, it all adds up, doesn't it? So yeah. when you've got multiples, it can go, it can go bad or well, it can go a lot better or a lot worse, depending yeah. on which way it goes. Uh, what a single unit on an infill plot, you know, you get a quite of a builder, yeah, 10% contingency, you're not going to be far off with those sort of numbers. Yeah. But I think it's important to cut your teeth on a build. I mean, Mark, I'm sure you could even pitch in on here, having done a number of builds yourself. Yeah. You know, are you more educated today than you were five years ago or ten years ago? You know, yeah. and how benefit how much benefit to you has that experience have been of, of just dealing with all those problems on site that you yeah. were unforeseen at the time, but you yeah. now probably allow for in your spreadsheet. Yeah. Absolutely. It's mm-hmm. yeah, it, it, you learn something new from from every single development and that's why we're really keen to sort of um get across that message to our um, new investors and our students is, you know, cut your teeth on some of these smaller projects. Yeah. And you've just brought that to life brilliantly there as to the real life impact of when things go a little bit awry with a bigger project, how that has a, a multiplying effect. And suddenly that can get quite scary quite quickly. Um, and, and I think, yeah, absolutely. As, as investors, you know, you learn from every project that you do and you scale up your knowledge and you do it that way rather than jumping in at the deep end. That being said, I totally buy into your argument as well about power team and how important it is to surround yourself with experts and ultimately people who know are not a lot more about aspects of, of, of the operation than you do. If you even do that for the smaller deals to start with, it's just going to make those go even better. So, yeah. you know, you can you can safeguard yourself by much better by even on those smaller deals starting with, a yeah. good solid team that have got experience there and still yeah, work their way up into, into bigger projects. And I, th- I think I think what comes out of this is, is a quote I use all the time because I, I read it somewhere, I can't even remember who said it, and I just thought, that sums it all up. And it's like, you know what you know, and you know what you don't know. Yeah. So I know I'm not an electrician, right? So I know I don't know anything about that stuff. I know what I know, I know I'm architecturally you know, qualified and I, I know all the stuff I know. But the biggest area is what I don't know about what I don't know. But when people start on, you know, they should start with questions. And because as soon as you start asking questions, you then suddenly realize, actually, there's a lot of stuff here I didn't even know I was supposed to be asking about. Yeah. You know, I didn't even realize that actually before I did X, I needed to do Y. Yeah. I mean, actually, I just missed the whole process out. And that is quite fundamental, you know. And, you know, the reason why I said no to that chap on the phone, that wasn't being rude. I was like, joking at the same time i was like no he was like okay why i'm like ah, this is not edu- this is not an education i've realized now your level of education you know you need, you need to go away and do a basic property course and just stay away from land developments because this is this is too far yeah. go for a hmo do a do a six bed hmo under pd start cut your teeth on that because 
you know, there's there's, there's a huge naivety there. It, you know, if, if Mark came to me tomorrow with um, a scheme and it was a new build development of, you know, 150 units, I'd be thinking, okay, that's a step up, you know, from what we've been talking about. But at least I know you've got the grounding yeah. and the experience on other schemes. You're not coming into this as a newbie investor. But I would still sit you down, you know, in, in order of importance, the planning consultant, number one, and then I'd get the highways consultant in to talk yeah. about access issues and parking restrictions and because all of those things are building up and I'm just sitting there waiting for the dust to settle and I go, okay guys, what's the problem? The problem is uh, in this particular area they want 0.6 parking ratio. Okay, that's going to limit the number of dwellings because the parking's really at a premium here. So therefore, before I work out a number of dwellings, I'm working out the number of parking spaces. And then I might say, well actually, what we need to do here is undercroft parking because that's limiting what you can get, we could probably go up another story, get some airspace on this. You know, we could go up another story, but let's just forfeit the ground floor and do undercroft parking to get another 10 spaces, which means you can put another 10 flats on this development. So yeah. it's a bit of a jigsaw, but you need all of the advice from the right people. And a good example of this was a client of mine that actually did really well. So this is a success story. Um, he did really well on a plot. He he did, a, he did an option with a client to buy a plot for about £400,000 with planning, outline planning permission for eight new build dwellings and uh, there was another six uh, affordable houses on the, on the site. Um, so he, he did this option uh, to buy the site and, and obviously had to go through a whole planning application. We did the plan application. Uh, it was a reserve matters application, which meant that it was, in principle, it was approved subject to a load of reserve matters being satisfied. One of those reserve matters was to prove that the entrance to the site worked and there was enough vision splay with the speed limit outside of 30 miles an hour um, to allow access into a site which had effectively 12 out of 14 dwellings on it. So there's a whole calculation that's done by highways to work out what, how wide that road needs to be, the vision splay, uh, the distances involved, and, and, and any obstructions that could affect that. When they did the calculation, it turned out that the pub on the front of the site was in the way. Yeah. And in order to get the road to work, they would have to chop the pub in half to get the road to work. Fortunately for my client, the pub was what he bought with the land. So he was able to chop the pub in half. And in his high-level packet feasibility, he had worked out he could get two residential units at that pub. And even though we chopped it in half with our innovation and spatial awareness, we managed to get three residential units at the <laughs> pub. So he was a happy chappy. But can you imagine if he didn't own that pub? Yeah. I mean, he'd spent at this point probably the best part of 40,000 pounds on fees to get planning permission. It would have been rejected on highways. And he would have had to go to the pub. And if the pub was like fully functioning, you know, and uh, or even someone was selling it, the price of that pub has just gone up because they've seen a refusal on the planning portal. Mm. So as, as funny as that sounds, it's it's actually, people come to me and they say, oh, well, it's already got planning this site. I say, what type of planning? Uh, planning, yeah, outline. Is it outline with approved matters? Is it full planning? Oh, it's just planning, I think. Okay, send me the link. <laughs> okay, right. okay, this is outline planning. And it's outline planning, and there's there's no detailed approvals. In fact, looking at this plot, outline planning for ten houses, I can tell you right now, 
with the proximity of the other dwellings and the separation distances, I'd be surprised if you can get four houses on it. Yeah, because the point is, and it's, I actually think it's wrong that the planners give outline planning permission for fat packet schemes. But yeah. if you think about it, they get paid for that. And then they get paid again when you're going for your full planning. So it was almost like, yeah, in principle, yeah, we'll let you have some houses on there. But you've got to jump through a lot of hoops to prove it. So I think a lot of it is understanding all of that. And probably the best way to understand it is to go on a course and listen to someone explain all of that. Yeah. Uh, but then realize that actually you don't need to become a planning consultant. So for the last eight, eight years, nine years, I've been reading every single planning report done by a planning consultant for my clients. Reason being is I, I, want to, I want to understand what they're telling and I need to understand it, interpret it for myself as well. But in that 10 years, I've effectively become a planning consultant because I've read every single report. And I did a report the other day, or I did a response to a planner for a client. And the client came back and said, oh, well, how much do we owe the planning consultant for this report he did? I said, what report? Oh, that email that was sent to the planners. I said, no, no, I wrote that. And they were like, you wrote that? I was like, it sounds like a planning consultant. I said, yeah, because I, I listen. <laughs> I picked up a yeah. lot. I'm But the reason I wouldn't front a planning application is because as a planning consultant, they cover professional indemnity for all of that. And if they, if I missed one thing, which was really critical, you know, game over. Yeah. You know, they're not going to miss it. I might. So it's about mitigating risk. So I know what my skill set is. I stick, stick to that. And then I pull in consultants on everything else. Yeah. Because you're reducing the risk for the client and ultimately I'm reducing that risk for me. Yeah, brilliant. Fantastic. Well, Adrian, it's been absolutely fascinating. Uh, I'm conscious we're only scratching the surface. I can I can highly imagine this being part of several installments, if, if you're willing, further down the line. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, it's all about educating your viewers. And I know yeah. sometimes it comes across as being the Grim Reaper, but... It's, it's a no, it's really, really useful. Prepare yeah. for the worst, expect the best. Exactly, exactly. yeah. Some, exactly. some really, really useful nuggets there. So thank you so much for your time and insight. That's been absolutely amazing. We will stick your contact details into yeah. the show notes if anyone wants, wants to reach out to Adrian um, and, um, and, and follow what he's up to and the projects at Covest Architecture. You can do that. All the, all the details will be in the show notes. But thank you so much for your time, Adrian. Really appreciate it. And we will speak to you again soon. Thanks, Adrian. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, James. Thanks, for having me. Cheers, James. Bye. What a fascinating episode. So many nuggets for experienced investors and newbies alike. As I said, it really felt as though we just scratched the surface there. If you found this content useful and you would like us to revisit in future episodes, why not head on over to the Property Wealth System community page on Facebook and let us know. Please give this podcast a like and a follow wherever you get your podcast fix. And if you get a minute to leave us a short review on your podcast platform of choice, that will help make it easier for other people to discover the podcast too. Thanks again for listening and I will catch you on the next episode. Thank you.